0: If you have your Bibles, let's uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are in uh, verse 17. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 22 this morning. Pastor Jeff said we're going back to 1 Corinthians. We've been here for a couple of years. So thanks for your patience. You know, we take some breaks. Some have asked, why, do, why don't we just like, stick in one book and go all the way through it. I don't really have a good answer for you. I, I think it's helpful to not spend that much time and that long in one place. It's at least good for me to see some fresh ground every once in a while. Um, so I, I hope it's helpful to you to do that. And there's some times where things come up and we just want to hit on that. But um, Last Easter, we looked at Christ actually instituting the Lord's Supper. I think we did it out of Matthew. And then when we're in 1 Corinthians, we hit chapter 10, which is probably contains, uh, we'll get there in a minute, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, maybe the most helpful teaching on what the Lord's Supper is. And now we'll spend three Sundays here at the end of chapter 11 teaching on the Lord's Supper. And one of the reasons we want to do so is because many of you have, for the entirety of your life, celebrated Lord's Supper. Uh, you've been in churches. Some churches do different frequency. That is how, how often we do it. We do it monthly. So you've done this repeatedly but don't really know what it is or what it's doing, if anything. And I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of that. And then, of course, there is, as we'll see in this chapter, real actual spiritual work going on, which means that if we're doing it in a way that isn't pleasing the Lord, there's actually danger there for us. And so we want to be well informed of what this is. And so that's what we're going to do over the next three Sundays, try to lay a foundation. And so I I ask for your attention. There's going to be a lot of teaching, trying to help you understand this supper and what it is and what it's for. Let me read these verses. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now, in, back at the beginning of chapter 11 and verse 2, he says, I commend you. So there he was commending them for something, but now as he switched gears and looks at the Lord's Supper, he has nothing good to say to them. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I will not. Let's pray. I teach our hearts to stand in awe of your words, that we might hope in you for salvation and do your commands. May our souls keep your testimonies and teach us to love them exceedingly. God, all our ways are before you, and so we want to be pleasing to you and so that we might love your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Where Paul references a letter, and actually here back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul references a letter or letters that he's received from the church where they're asking him certain questions about the church. So he says in chapter 7 verse 1, Now the, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and one of those obviously is the Lord's Supper, or maybe if it wasn't a letter, Paul has heard something about how they're doing it. And it's been displeasing to him. One way to think about these chapters is Paul is trying to set good order in the church. There's disorder in certain areas of the church and it's really harming the church. They had disorder in chapter 7 in accords to marriage. In chapters 8 through 10, they had disorder in regards to food. What they could and couldn't eat and certain conscience and how they were to love each other. In chapter 11, the, the, the context is worship. They had disorder within their gathering for corporate worship. And uh, there were two areas of disorder in verses 1 to 16. It was in how men and women related to each other. If you remember earlier, we were talking about head coverings and so on. And now the disorder in our verses in 17 to 34 is concerning the Lord's Supper. So right after this then, in chapters 12 to 14, he spends three chapters on the unity of the church in its diversity. So it follows then if the gathering of the church is so disordered and in such disunity, then Paul's going to spend the next three chapters immediately following this on uh, how to have unity in the church around Christ. So what he's trying to do in these verses though is to set good order in uh, the churches celebrating the Lord's Supper. So we have uh, these verses on the Lord's Supper. So he doesn't commend them, you'll see that. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. I don't know here if in the letter that the church wrote or what Paul had heard, they were maybe boasting about how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They thought they were doing pretty well at it. And they were expecting a fatherly pat on the back an attaboy, and attaboy. Uh, what Paul has heard has displeased them. So he, he needs to set them in order. So he, he, he is returning to discuss the Lord's Supper that he looked at in chapter 10. And in our verses this morning, we see the issues, the problems. Uh, we'll see next Sunday in verses uh, 23 through 26 what the Lord's Supper is and how to celebrate it. And then in 27 to 34, uh, we'll see more of a solution in how to do it. So let, let's first just look at what do we learn about the Lord's Supper in our verses? What is the Lord's Supper? Why do we do it? What's the purpose of it? Um, because God has great purpose in all that he does. He is a purposeful God. He he doesn't just give you things to do that aren't for anything. God isn't a God of just uh, any rote practices that that don't have any spiritual connection, any meaning for your lives. He actually has very great purposes in them. In um, verse—I'm sorry, I'll get back to there in a moment, but— so what I want to do here, be, before we just jump into it, is just remind us of what it is. In verse 23, which we'll get into next week, Paul says, I received from the Lord. One of the things to get grounded in your mind is that the Lord's Supper was something instituted by Jesus. And do you remember when he did it? When did he institute the Lord's Supper? It was on the night right before he died, right? And so we should pay attention to it because if there... It, this is the last thing that Jesus instructed his church to do before he died. Of all the things Christ could have instructed the church on, the last thing he did before dying on the cross in our place for our sin was to institute the Lord's Supper. So this, this the Lord's Supper, taking the Lord's Supper is of paramount importance. And, and so part of what I want you to feel there is when you're taking it, you're doing something that is vital to the Lord for you. He gave it to you on the night he was betrayed, on the night he was dragged before the Jewish authorities, on the night he was dragged before Pilate, on the morning when he was beaten and mocked by the soldiers and hanged on the cross. Right before that, the last thing he did was say, do this in remembrance of me. So maybe you could think, is there anything of greater importance to your spiritual life than the Lord's Supper? Could it be that important to you? It's not a take it or leave it spiritual exercise. It's a vital one, it's a necessary one. Now, one of the repeated phrases in our section is come together. In verse 17, when you come together, verse 18, when you come together, in verse 20, When you come together, later on we'll we'll see it repeated a few times. So in these few verses, three times, one of the things we learn about this is that this meal is for the entire church joining together. This meal was separated or celebrated, always has been, throughout Christian history when the church is together. That's because of the very nature of what we are, isn't it? What are we? What is the church? Well, we're the body of Christ. We're a family of which Christ is the head. And so this meal has been given to us to celebrate when we're together. It's to enjoy as brothers and sisters. I don't know if you enjoyed it last week when we all came forward. I thought it was really uh, encouraging to see everyone come together, to see you guys talking to each other. I think that communicated something vital about the Lord's Supper, that this is a Unifying meal for the entire body, given to show our unity. In fact, that's the entire purpose of this section from chapter 7 through 14, that the church of Christ is one body in Christ. Many members, many diverse members, but we are one. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit has been one throughout eternity, even though there's uh, three, even though they're diverse, they're one, so it is with us. That's what the Lord's Supper is to communicate. That's what it's for. So it's something that God gave to us through his son on the eve of his death and it's given for the entire church to celebrate. Those are two big truths we learn in our text. But what do we gain from it? At the end of verse 17, it says, when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worst. So there is supposed to be given to us in the, Lord's, in the Lord's Supper something good for us. It's for our betterment. It is meant to do something good for you. But how the Corinthians were celebrating it had the opposite effect. It had a negative effect. It was for the worse. So what good does God intend? What good does God intend for us in the Lord's Supper. Let me take you back, if I could, to chapter 10. In chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 16, we are taught the nature of this supper, and we're taught it in part by the names it's given. The cup of blessings. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all take of one bread. But just think of that word, the cup of blessing. Blessing, what is blessing? Well, a blessing is an addition that's a benefit to your life. Something that God gives that adds to you something that you didn't have before but that you need. That's part of what the Lord's Supper is. It's God adding to your life that which you need but can't get on your own. It is you coming by faith, participating is the language you use here if you remember back. If you have good memory... I wouldn't. Participation there is the well-used Christian word koinonia, fellowship. It has to do with our union with Christ, our oneness with him, our being united to him very nearly and dearly in the Lord's Supper, just as when you eat food and it becomes one with you that nourishes and strengthens you. So that's what's happening to us as we take the Lord's Supper by faith. Now this isn't a magic thing. This isn't something that just happens no matter how you take it, as we see in our chapter. It needs to be taken by faith. But the blessing that we're blessed with when we take the Lord's Supper is that we are somehow spiritually, mysteriously participating with Christ. We are fellowshipping with him in a very unique way. Uh, That it's a meal is the metaphor for it. Go back, if you would, to John chapter 6. If you're doing the Bible reading program, you read this this week. And in John chapter 6, Jesus said some things that absolutely scandalized people. In chapter chapter 6, beginning at verse 30, Jesus is equating himself with bread from heaven with manna. So he said to them, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? They want to test him. They want to see if he's the real deal. Jesus had just fed the 5,000, so I'm sure that's in their minds. He'd he just done this, but they're asking for more signs apparently. So he, he uses this idea of bread. Well, our, fa- our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as witness wit, and he gave bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave them bread for heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. Always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. All right, I don't think Jesus is here I don't think his main intent here is to be teaching with the Lord's Supper, but I believe what he's teaching helps us understand the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit, as we partake of it by faith, is nourishing us spiritually on Christ. That's the cup of blessing. That, that's what's happening That's what Christ is for us. In the Lord's Supper, there is a participation with Christ in a unique way that isn't happening anywhere else. And that's what God has given it to us for. That's why it's called the Lord's Table in 1017. Or in 1120, that's why it's called the Lord's Supper. The reason God names it those names is to communicate to you the reality that in taking that meal together as a church by faith, Your Father in heaven, by the Holy Spirit that he has sent among us, is strengthening your faith, is nourishing your soul on his Son. That's what that meal is for. If you move down in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, in verse 48. Again, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died This is the bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What does he mean by that? One may eat of it. How do you eat of Christ? It's just a little bit later when Jesus says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life and I will raise him up. My, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drink my blood, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. <laughs> what does he mean? Uh, a little humorous, down in verse sixty. <laughs> Many disciples sort of they said, "This is a hard saying." <laughs> what does Jesus mean? How do we eat of his flesh and drink of his blood? It's faith. It's giving you a metaphor for faith. He's using something. Jesus is so kind to us. He's so kind and helping us understand. This is something you do every day. Several times a day, you eat food and you drink, drink. Something you understand that you have to partake of this nourishment and this drink to sustain life. if you don't eat, if you don't drink, you'll die, you'll wither away to nothing. And it, by faith, that's what we do with Christ. By faith, we eat of Christ. by faith we drink of him. He, is so unified with us, we are in such a union with him that it's like food being assimilated to your body through the digestive process. That's how near our relationship is to Jesus. And the Lord's Supper seems to be a very particular way that that nourishment is gotten by his people by faith. It is a vital reality for you and for me. I wish I could impress this upon you enough. You will not be sustained by Christ as you otherwise would unless you take of the Lord's Supper by faith regularly together in the gathering of the church. It's more necessary than your own personal devotions. It's more necessary than your Bible studies. Those are necessary and good and right. But this is to be a central place that the Christian comes and is nourished and strengthened and participates in the life of Christ. It's absolutely vital to us. And and of course, the Lord's Supper itself, he said, do, do this in remembrance of me. It is there that we hold a piece of bread or a cup of drink that reminds us that Jesus Christ did take on flesh. And that He did suffer in His flesh. And He did shed His blood so that you and I could come to God. It's there again that we know the grace of God. We know Him who has loved us forever. Who has given us boundless grace, infinite compassion, has suffered unthinkable agony so that we could receive the welcome of the Father as sons. That's what this meal is communicating to you, to your senses, to your soul. The grace of God, that's what we're getting. And so then, when the church in Corinth is perverting it, it's for their worse. It is a meal given by God of such spiritual potency that to take of it in a wrong way is to bring spiritual judgment on yourself. A little later on in chapter 11, in verse 30, it says, This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Because they're partaking of it in such a bad way, in such a faithless way. They're perverting it. So, Paul has no praise for them. How are they perverting it? Well, one of the ways that's implied in this is that they've added to the simplicity of it. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was very simple. What did he do? Well, he gathered with his disciples. They had a simple loaf of bread and a simple cup of wine. It's very, very simple. They shared the bread together. They shared the wine together. And they all took of it together. It was a very, very, very simple um, act. But the Corinthians, as many did, added to it what is in Jude called the love feast. They added this big meal, this bigger thing. And it was probably for good intent. They wanted to come together as a church and eat together. They wanted to care for those who didn't have enough food. It was intended to be good, but it, it morphed into something very bad. They went beyond the Lord's command here. And if you remember earlier on in chapter 10, part of both Jewish ritual sacrifice And pagan ritual sacrifices was a feast. Along with the sacrificing to idols, or the sacrificing animals, was a feast. A big, huge feast. And it looks like the Corinthian feast was more looking like the pagan feasts. Well, in Corinth, if you were rich, you had lots of food. And if you were poor, you didn't have anything. And so the wealthy were going on and eating and drinking to the extent that they were so full that some were getting drunk, while others were hungry. And so they were adding to the meal, but in adding it, there seemed to be some division. Particularly along economic lines, those who had and those who did not have. Those with the means brought food and didn't share and went ahead of others and ate, while those without went hungry. So in verse 21, this contrast between hunger and drunk is... Supposed to communicate to you how strong the division was. Some were empty and some were so full as to have too much. Paul says that they were humiliating those who had nothing and so despising the church. So it's no surprise then in verse 30 when you see this judgment, this discipline of the Lord for what they're doing to each other. Because in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, right? In Christ, there's no male or female. In Christ, there's no rich or poor. In Christ, there's no free or slave. We're all one in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is mainly to communicate that unity. That's what it's for. But in how they were celebrating, it was communicating something very else. So that Paul goes on and says, you think you're taking the Lord's Supper, but it's not even that. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat in verse 20. Because the way they're taking it Was so obscuring what it was that it was no longer that thing anymore. We're supposed to have no distinction, no places of prominence. All right, so one of the things to do with this text is to thank God, hopefully without pharisaical pride, that we're not like that. (laughs) I mean, really, thank God that we don't have this. I think it's a real joy and a treat to be part of a church where there's not a whole bunch of infighting and factions and divisions. It is really a grace of God to be a part of a church that on the whole loves each other and cares for each other and you don't see a whole bunch of distinctions in here. The haves and the have-nots. I think when we all came together last Sunday, we saw that. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. So praise God. Praise God we're not like Corinth. (laughs) Sounds pretty hard to say. God, forgive me but well, we could be couldn't we so so we should be warned here in this text and and we haven't really added to the simplicity of it either thank god we're celebrating it like christ taught us to celebrate it we have simple bread i do think as i've mentioned before we should have wine and not only grape juice we'll see on that in coming years That's what Christ did. We want to just do what he did. That's simple faith. That's what I want us to do. But on the whole, I think we're just keeping it to the simple celebration of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted. So thank God. So I think maybe if Paul were writing a letter to us or if I'm just saying, I would commend you in this. Praise God for this. Thanks. Thanks for the care you have for each other. Thanks for how you serve those who don't have. Thank you for Drawing near to those who are sorrowful and grieving loss. So keep that up. That is such good work. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. It's to nourish and strengthen our unity and our care for each other. But it, this would be a good time for you and I to just ask ourselves the question okay, where might we be in danger of getting the Lord's Supper wrong? Where might we have some danger? Well, one of them is, we just, it just becomes kind of a mere formality. We do it, but we don't know what it is, and we don't know what it's for. I do think that's a common problem in churches like ours. We're not well taught on this. This is a pastor's problem. This is an elder's problem. We don't teach it. We just do it. So the church goes through the motions. They think it's something, and they think it's something that's probably supposed to do something, but they really don't know what, and so they the people really take it without much of an understanding at all. Um, and, and when you don't understand something, when it's not new, when, if you're a new Christian, you're taking the Lord's Supper for the first time or earlier times, it just has this awe and so it's new. Or if you're on the other side and you really get some understanding of it and you know some of the inner workings of it, you can get some wonder there too. But if you're in that mushy middle, If it's not new anymore and you really don't know what it is, it's just blah. And you can just go through the motions. And there's some danger for us there. God wants us to do this understanding so that we can enjoy it, so we can have some awe of it. So that our children, as they grow up in this church, take this meal with the joy and awe that it is supposed to communicate to them. And it's not just like some spiritual exercise that's like a car revving its engine but not going anywhere. It seems pretty cool, but I don't know what it's for. And so what is it for? That's what I tried to communicate in the bigger beginning part of it. What is it for? Well, if you just want to continue to go back to what it's for, I, I urge you to look at chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. I think those are the most densely packed verses in the Bible that teach what the Lord's Supper is and what it's for. It is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And I would encourage you to spend some time looking up that word participation. It's a word that our English language doesn't do real well communicating the intimacy, the union, the Oneness, the, the spiritual connection that we have in this meal together. And it is really wonderful. So that's the first. The second way that I think churches like ours, a church like Pine Drill, uh that we may, may have some danger. And I think this is with good intent. Those of you who have done this, I've done this. And It's done with good intent, but it's when we take a supper, when we, when we do the Lord's Supper outside of the gathering of the local church, you'll notice repeatedly, as I pointed out before in these verses, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. That the Lord's Supper is given to the local church to be celebrated on the Lord's Day, Every reference in the Bible to the Lord's Supper is on the Lord's Day in the gathering of the local church under the authority of the elders. The Lord's Supper in the Bible is not celebrated anywhere else ever. That's what it's for. It's for the gathering of the church. In fact, in verse 22, look at how he contrasts the celebration of the Lord's Supper when they come together together. You have houses, go eat in them alone. Come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But in your houses, outside of the gathering of the Lord's Church, eat and drink your food there if you need to. So it just sets highlights even more that the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated only in the gathering of God's people together on the Lord's Day. This has been true throughout church history. The meal that Christ has given is a meal given to the gathered church under the authority of the elders because it is who Christ who gave it and who has always celebrated it there. But I know that sometimes you've done it with your spouse outside of the church or maybe a father when the family was on vacation and a time when the church was celebrate Lord's Supper would do it just with their family or... Maybe as a small gathering of believers, you're having a campfire or something, you want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I was a part of Campus Crusade. We had times when the Campus Crusade gathering was together and we'd celebrate the Lord's Supper. I've been a part of Christian camps that have done it. And I don't think that should ever be done in those places because of this text. It cheapens it. It communicates something that it should not communicate because it's supposed to communicate our unity gathered together. It's not supposed to communicate the, the marriage unity or the family unity or the other Christian organization unity. It's supposed to communicate the church unity. And I understand the good intent behind it. I understand the desire to have kind of a spiritual cathartic good feeling with those that you're together with, whether it's your marriage or your family or other Christian groups. And I know that sometimes we take the, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We're all equal in Christ so we could celebrate anywhere or we kind of take that verse in Matthew 18 out of context where two or more are gathered which is really about discipline. It's not about this. But there can also be just a pride. Okay, in, in unevaluated pride in ourselves thinking that we can take this meal and lead others in it when Christ has not given us that authority to do I think that's a way that we could be taking it for the worse and not for the good here it creates a distinction of a small group among the church and that's a problem it can sentimentalize it can cheapen it, it can feel very meaningful but that's the problem Feels that's the thing. But that's not the thing. I'm not saying though that when you celebrate the Lord's Supper it shouldn't be emotionally awesome. That's not the main thing. Because the preciousness of celebrating the Lord's Supper is doing it together as the body of Christ, that he's gathered together from all places and people and different backgrounds, coming together under our head, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who spilled his blood. Body was broken so that we could have eternal life in one body, under his one head, by one spirit. That's what it's for Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this meal. It is sobering. It's sobering because it's, it's, it's uh, wondrous. It's incredible what you've given us. And so, God, please teach us what it means and what you've given it to us for, that we might take it with more understanding, with more knowing, and so by faith more. That you would nourish and strengthen us and knit us together in, in unity and in love even more so, that we might honor your Son more. Forgive us for all the ways that we've taken it for worse, But we've gone beyond the bounds. And, and so, God, teach us to take it in a way that brings more joy and more celebration to your glory. Right, it's a celebration of your Son in whom we have eternal life, which we give you good thanks for.